0: online, on digital,
1: digital, and the ABC Listen app.
0: The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
2: Coming up today, the backpackers back and looking to come to Tasmania
3: quite a few backpackers ringing up this year more than we've had this is the first call I've had for three years on backpackers so we've probably got half a dozen backpackers lined up already and we'll probably try and get another 10 or 15 of those guys to just put in our own accommodation here and yeah so a bit of a mix hopefully.
2: And despite the weather the grain sector looking good.
4: My personal opinion for the crops at the moment in general it's probably the best they've ever looked and we're expecting some pretty decent yields. So you overlay that with Despite, you know, the problems that we've got in New South Wales, which are real, in generally speaking, the crops are going to be very big in Australia.
2: Now the grain sector is going and the backpackers back in the country and keen to come to Tasmania. Those stories coming up for you. G'day, Tony, with you on this Tuesday, where we also discover the berry industry is booming in the state. It's now a bigger crop than potatoes, unheard of a decade ago. But we'll look at the latest figures in just a moment. Also, a new shipping service between Devonport and New Zealand is underway. We'll check the latest on the weather as well. <laughs> Try and find out what's happening with the weather. Who would know? And as always, take your thoughts on any issue via the text line on 0438 922 Nine double two nine three six is that number. First up today, the fruit industry in Tasmania has reached a new high, mainly through the expansion of the berry industry. It now generates more money than the vegetable sector. CEO of Fruit Growers Tasmania, Peter Cornish, says the latest Ag scorecard released by the government shows just how much the fruit industry is worth to the state.
5: Fruit overall grew by 45% in the year, which really is pretty amazing. But berries are certainly by far the biggest in terms of our fruit category. Fruit overall now are over um, 20% of Tasmania's agriculture sector, which is pretty amazing itself. But berries now, which grew um, even more, so grew by th- um, 63% in the year, um, is now the biggest crop, so it's even bigger than the likes of potatoes. And and on the livestock side it's even bigger than our, our lamb and mutton sector, so it's really quite an amazing position now that our berry growers um, play in tasmania's
2: agricultural scene. has it snuck up on everybody these figures?
5: look I think it has probably a little bit we We probably thought that the scorecard under value just how big um, the berry sector was but there's been some you know some massive growth a massive investment and I think the great thing about this is um, that really is a lot of investment it's a it's a high investment industry and also it's a very high employing industry. Um, I mean overall now in the year to come there'll be over 10,000 people who are involved in Tasmania's fruit industry but particularly in the berry side of it it's well spread out across the regions and reinvesting and employing locally Um, so it's a a really big and important part of, of the Tasmanian agricultural scene. The berry industry generally, I think, has done a, a, a really good job in terms of increasing the category in the supermarkets and, and positioning the the berries as now an everyday item that so many of us buy. And I think that demand has really expanded right throughout Australia and there's a lot of work by a lot of the national companies that want to have year-round production. But the great thing for us is that you know, our berry sector harvest for for about seven months of the year. So it's a really long and, and important part of it. Um, but we just, the, the good thing is we just grow really good berries and particularly, you know, raspberries and blackberries, which we are the largest producing state. And we're the second largest producer of blueberries. So it's an ideal time to be growing berries throughout our summer period and, and into the autumn. And we play a really large role um, on the Australian scene.
2: And with this increase in the expansion of the berry industry, the worker issue, the picking issue rears its head once again.
5: Yeah, look, it certainly does. Um, there's no question about that. We, you know, for every, for every four or so seasonal workers that we engage, we actually put on a full time ongoing role as well. So it's really important to get that right balance about harvest people, but also that supports our ongoing full time and ongoing employees uh, in the industry. So. Um, but you're right, as we keep growing in this way, we keep needing more and more people, while they certainly try to be more efficient in a range of ways. This is a hand-picked industry, so it becomes very important. And I guess over COVID, there were some real challenges with that, even though this is a time when we had this expansion, and remembering that this was right in the middle of COVID, these numbers in terms of out to June 21. But he's really worked very hard, and, and the good thing for the berry industry is that they are very well suited to the uh, Pacific Australia, Australia Labor Mobility Scheme, our uh, seasonal worker program. So the Pacific Islanders and, and people from Timor-Leste, because it's six or seven months, um, it is really well-suited and there's been a lot of take-off of people coming over and that's a great scheme that works great for those countries as well as for Tasmania.
2: As you say, these figures are for 2020-2021. We're now almost at the end of 2022. So do you think the expansion has really continued?
5: Look, it certainly has and we certainly have seen that already and you know, we are out at uh, Mountford Berries uh, for the release of these numbers last week and they themselves, over the two years since since the end of that June 21 figure, they've actually increased their uh, production area by 80%. Um, so this is some really, and that, that typifies, you know, Tasmanian families who are reinvesting and and ex- expanding and changing the nature of those mixed farming operations, you know, utilising our, our our natural advantages, but also in terms of as well from the water resources we have. But that's a lot of investment, a lot of hard work. So really the numbers that will come after this for the next couple of years are looking even better and and so we're really looking forward to that as well.
2: Are the growers making money with the prices uh, when especially when at the height of berry season there's a lot to choose from?
5: Well I would certainly hope so because um, there's a lot of money being invested look it is like anything there's a seasonal it's a seasonal um, market um, but I think the good thing is we are uh, supplying berries particularly from from now so we really get going start to get going here in November but December's a big month as is January and also February and I think that's an ideal time in summer when demand is strong also when we come into our own with our our cooler climates but our middle of summer is is very uh, very supportive of those temperate fruits which is what raspberries and berries in particular are so it is a it is a good time to be growing There's a lot of demand uh, both locally here in Tassie but also nationally we don't export much on the berry front at the moment, particularly because I think there's just so much demand uh, at home. So there is a lot of demand and um, and hopefully we we'll get that uh, supply-demand balance right so people can be making uh, money, keep investing and keep employing people.
2: Will that change now, the export markets uh, as we move on and expand more?
5: I think it will. And one of the things we've certainly done is, is launched our Tasmanian Grow On website, which is a showcase of of all the great things we grow in fruit, but also vegetables and nuts. And, um, you know, our recent trip to Bangkok and Asia, Fruit Logistics certainly showed about how much market recognition there is for Tasmanian cherries. And, and people start to ask, well, what else do you grow? Now, a big challenge about that is getting the pathways right, because not every country allows imports of fruit. So we are in a very positive position here because of our pest-free area, but there's still quite some work to do on the berry front to get more market access. But I think as we continue to grow and we continue to increase supply, exports will become a really important part of the demand for the industry.
2: Just in the context of the berry industry, does Australia import a lot of berries?
5: Uh, look, we import some, but but not really. We that's all round production is, is a really important part of what we do, and I mean our, our imports are guided one by demand, but two by from a biosecurity point of view. So it's a really important role that um, from a pest and disease point of view, that biosecurity plays nationally, but really because if we have a such a, 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 a north south stretch of production. Um, there is a lot of year-round production of, of a lot of our berries, so pretty hard to imagine as I was growing up that you'd see a lot of raspberries growing in Queensland, but we certainly see them with the varietal changes uh, that happening. So it's largely contained, and uh, as is the, the supply really taken up fully uh, by the Australian market, although there are some areas, of exports, that, that do happen.
2: CEO of Fruit Growers Tasmania, Peter Cornish, on the rise and rise of the berry industry in the state, making Tasmania's fruit industry the third largest by value behind the dairy and the meat sector. Well, the apple industry was once Tasmania's biggest fruit sector, but it's been going through a tough time lately with lower returns to growers, labour shortages, the increases in wages to pickers, plus the prospect of US apples coming into the country. So how are growers feeling? Head industry body Apple and Pear Australia hosts sessions with farmers and scientists on orchards around the country. The latest at Ryan Hankins' apple orchard at Sergis Bay in the Huon Valley saw the trees put under the microscope by his peers. A big challenge for any apple grower.
3: It's always a bit daunting having so many people come to your, to your farm and, yeah, look at what you're doing and, and, and see, yeah.
6: Well, they're looking at fruit numbers, etc. Uh, how do you feel you're going with everything this season so far?
3: Uh, it's all looking okay, we've had, a, we've had a cold wet spring so things have have been slow getting off, off to a slow start but in general we've got a good crop, um, fruit numbers are there, we just need a bit of warm weather to get them going now.
6: So we've had a look at a couple of varieties, uh, Jazz and Gala I think?
3: Yes, yeah. we looked at some of our older planting Jazz and some of the, the newer V-trellis style plantings of Jazz and Gala.
6: And we talked about profitability. Uh, are you finding the new V planting where they're tall Vs are better?
3: Uh, yes, they're, they're definitely better. The the cost of production is lower. They're, they're more expensive to plant, but once they're there, they are, they're actually a, a short V, so they're not at all. They're, they're about a metre or so shorter than our our existing plantings, so that means that we don't have people up on ladders so high. We do 80% of the work from the ground, And yeah, so cost of production is lower and production is equal or higher than what we have done in the past.
6: Okay, so you're working with two different types of pruned trees and that'll continue. You can't convert what you already have, I'm assuming?
3: Yeah, that's right. So all our new plantings will be on a on a or a two-dimensional system which lends itself to platforms which we've, we've purchased a couple of platforms in the last two years so that they're very efficient in in two-dimensional orchards um, and as I said the cheapest cheapest production you can have is people on, gr- on the ground which so 80% of the work will be done on the ground.
6: You said you've had the platforms for a couple of years have they proved worthwhile and just explain to me quickly how they are, how they work?
3: Uh yes they're definitely worthwhile um nearly to the to the state that we probably wouldn't have got a crop pick without them especially in the in the years of the covid we had to use a lot of different types of labor which work quite well on the platforms look they come with their advantages and disadvantages they're very expensive they're high capital they're high maintenance and at the end of the day You still get the same job done, but the quality of the harvest is better. So it costs you as much or probably more to pick them on the platform, but your packouts are better, your fruit handling is better.
6: And this is where several pickers can work at once from a platform and put them onto a little conveyor belt. It's just a little bit more efficient, and more people can do it.
3: That's right. So we got, we've, we work in the platforms. Work with six people: three on either side, two on platforms, and two on the ground. Um, and what it does is get people off ladders. Like not many people are very efficient on ladders. Um, they're dangerous. And using the platforms, there's no ladder work, and it's more efficient for people who aren't gun pickers
6: so did you get new types of pickers if you're saying aren't gun pickers did you look at different uh sectors of the community to help you in the last season or so
3: yeah so so the first year of covid we had all locals um a lot of older people a lot of younger people which we got the crop off it was it was very hard we worked seven days a week to do it but the last two years we've had the Pacific Islanders come in, and, and they're great. They're great workers. They're they're very expensive by the time you pay all the on costs, but um, they're they're really efficient workers, and they work well on the platforms or off the platforms. So, yeah.
6: And you'll do the same again this year, this season.
3: Yes. yep. Yeah, we we've got our normal Islander people guys coming back, so they're coming. We have a a crew that come from December to May and then we have additional guys that come for the cherry picking Uh, but we've also got quite a few backpackers ringing up this year more than we've had this is the first call I've had for three years on backpackers so we've probably got half a dozen backpackers lined up already and we'll probably try and get another 10 or 15 of those guys to just put in our own accommodation here and yeah so a bit of a mix hopefully.
6: OK, and cherries going OK?
3: Cherries looking good, good crop. Um, same thing, though, we just need some warm weather to get them kicking along. Uh, we've got all the covers out, so so that's um, protected them from some of the, the elements. Yeah, so anywhere where they've been under covers, they're looking
2: really good, yeah. Huon Valley apple and cherry grower Ryan Hankin talking to Fiona Breen at his orchard in Sergis Bay in the Huon Valley. We will check the weather for you in about uh, 10 minutes from now, see what's uh, in store. We're all worried about sustainability these days, and we want farmers to reduce their reliance on chemicals and monocultures to produce food. But how do you do that, especially if your farm is the biggest producer of celery in the country? Adam Shures runs a family business in Gippsland in Victoria and has made an incredible shift to what's called integrated pest management to restore the biodiversity on farm. He's also returning a lot of his country to native vegetation, filling in old drains and fencing of river flats. David Claughton spoke to him about his journey to sustainability. At uh, an event in Sydney,
7: it was probably 20 years ago. Now we um, we had resistance to a lot of chemicals. Uh, insects and grubs were getting in our celery, eating our our celery crops. And uh, I met a guy that was into um, IPM, which was bringing in promoting the good insects to fight off the bad ones. And rather than spraying, it was it was all about um, knowing what was attacking your crops and. Knowing what was in there and rather than just spraying and killing everything and repeating that over and over again it was uh, taking a bit of a hit initially letting these beneficial insects breed up and um, populate the crop and they eat the eggs of the the caterpillars as they're laid they um, just by having a presence in our crop it stops the, the bad insects coming in there because they know they're going to get eaten up when they do land. So Is that
8: right? Yeah. They don't stop at your farm?
7: Some do, but <laughs> way less than we used to, so yeah. yeah. And I think, did you say, you made a reference to my entomologist.
8: Is that right? Do you have an entomologist? That I, I do have
7: an entomologist. He's, he's not employed directly, but I've been working with uh, this guy, Paul Horn, now for, I think, 25 years, and um, we started... IPM in vegetables it wasn't done in vegetables before we started and he visits every Monday still and we 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 count our beneficial bugs we we get like a leaf blower and put in reverse we suck all the insects out of the crop and then we actually physically we put them in a white tray and we physically count them and we if there's um you know five aphids and Five ladybirds, we do nothing about it whatsoever because we know the ladybirds are gonna overtake the aphids and eat them all up.
8: What have you noticed over time about the number of insects and the variety in your property?
7: Uh, It's just very easy now to build them up because we we keep our boundaries um, treed with native um, trees that will have native flowers on them and they harbor um, the beneficial bugs. So whenever we plant a crop Straight away, they're in there populating the crop, and we, we really don't even have to look at it for spraying or worry about the insects that are going to come in and eat them. We, we still do weekly scout the crops, but it's very rare now that we'll put it... We don't even spray for aphids. I think we, in the last 10 years, we've probably been lucky to do it 10 times right. that.
8: Yeah. But there is an issue, isn't there? Because if you get insects in your pro- crop, good or bad, your produce... Then, then one of the, the major retailers might
7: knock that back what are, what's the criteria around that that's right a, a few of the major retailers the criteria is zero insects so for us to have beneficial insects in our crop is even a no-no um, with the major retailers so they, they don't like it the consumer they say the consumer wants a clean product with no insects at all um, one of the retailers has uh, put in their specification. That we can have three insects in there, um, three that's small Coles, yeah? insects. Yeah, that's right. Coals are doing that, which is which has been great for us um, to continue our IPM program. You know, we do our best to wash them out after harvest, but because of the way we manage our crops with these insects, we there is always one or two still in the in the crop.
8: And you created a great picture. In, in the chat around the table about your farm and how it looks with native animals and you said "said you know the birds and the kangaroos and the other things are quite welcome on my place you know that they're not doing any damage is that right?
7: No that's that's right exactly right How it's, does that work? I, I really don't know um, because we have created more of an environment for them but it was a fairly black canvas of, of grass before now we have native trees everywhere encircling our blocks and um, and there you can see all the animals around the boundaries, but I think they don't really like the soft soil either, where the crops are growing, and because there is all the native bushland, the native grasses, they don't need to come and eat our crops, so because um, you, you, you said away. you're
8: fencing off some areas. One block you told me you had 250 was it acres? that was just. For native vegetation on a on a fourteen,
7: we'll be we're planting it. We've we've planted seventy thousand so far, right. um, but yeah, over the next five or six years, we'll be we'll be planting all of our low lying country, which is yep. two hundred and fifty acres thereabouts.
8: And another one of your major you, um, production sites, you've fenced off quite a large part of the river, and you're and you re and and, and
7: filled and in your drains, vegetating that. Yeah, filling in drains, letting the letting the wetlands come back to as they were naturally. Uh, just promoting the biodiversity again and the the natural.
8: And that's not costing you from a production perspective?
7: No, these areas are low-lying and they're very risky um, from a flood perspective. So um, we could run cattle on it and and lease it out, which is, that's what was happening with it before. But we see much more benefit out of uh, promoting the biodiversity, getting the trees back in there and having it as a filter between our growing area and the river
8: right because it's anything that might be running off your place is getting filtered out of the river
7: that's that's correct yeah and any any nutrient that may be left in the water will will get stripped out of the water by the native wetland grasses which we have been planting a lot in any in our waterways um i've sort of been able to demonstrate to catchment management authorities that um if there are nitrates in our water by the time they go through all of our our grassland plantings they they don't even register on a test strip.
2: That's Australia's biggest producer of celery in the country, Adam Shures, who owns a farm at Gippsland, speaking there with David Claughton. Well, we know grocery prices in Australia are increasing but in Canada, they're increasing at the fastest rate in 40 years. they jumped 10% on the same time last year, outstripping the rate of inflation. A national reporter, Kath Sullivan, spoke with President of the Canadian Federation of Agriculture, Mary Robinson, to get a sense of farmers' competition concerns.
9: We're seeing Canadians struggling to pay for groceries. You know, the, this is, uh, we're seeing the highest prices in, in probably 40 years. So what the Competition Bureau has decided is they're going to just launch an investigation, and have a look to see what's going on uh, and after they do that they're going to um, see if there's uh, more diving they need to do there's certainly you know consideration that some of these um these impacts on pricing could be because of extreme weather or higher input costs or Russians invasion of Ukraine. Um, and we certainly have seen supply chain disruption. So there's a lot of details, a lot of moving parts that could explain why we're seeing these staggering increases in grocery prices. Um, but uh, they're also going to be having a look to see, um, is is there a requirement for more competition and is there something government should do to create a better environment to, uh, to allow competition to creep into the grocery, uh, the grocery realm? Because what we do see in Canada is quite an amalgamation of power. How
10: many retailers do you have and what percentage of food produced in Canada is sold domestically?
9: So we do we do definitely produce more food than we can consume just like Australia does uh and we also import a lot of food that we can't uh, produce. Like we do not grow bananas in Canada, as a, a you know it, it snowed here today. So uh, we definitely have a climate that limits uh, the the variety of foods that that we can produce. So when uh, when we look at Canada, I think it's fair to say that uh, probably five or so retailers control in excess of eighty percent of the of the grocery scene.
10: How are the grocery prices reflected in the returns for farmers?
9: Farmers are the, uh, the foundation for all of the food uh, that we eat and all of the economic spin offs, all of that value-add you talked about, uh, all of that that happens. If we don't have robust primary production, we don't have any of that. Uh, and unfortunately, as many of us do sell on a commoditized market and we're not, unable to differentiate, differentiate ourselves in those marketplaces, it leaves us being paid whatever the world price is. So when we look at, for example, a loaf of bread, uh, if you were to, I, I always want to see a pie chart. I wish that each label of food had a pie chart and explained the slivers how big the sliver is for each uh, component of the food chain that worked to get that loaf of bread on the shelf and into someone 's grocery cart because I think if uh, people could understand the level of investment and commitment on the part of primary production uh, in comparison to the value the uh, the bottom line the payment to them it 's staggeringly small. So as we see these incredible price increases at the grocery store level, as I said earlier, There are so many different components to that, potentially. Um, But what we do know on farm is that we've got incredibly escalating costs, whether it's uh, in in eastern Canada, where we farm, uh, we rely ahead before this year, we have relied heavily on uh, nitrogen coming out of uh, Russia. And that certainly is going to change. So when we look at how that's going to impact one of our biggest expenses on farm, that's really disconcerting. So we've got uh, fertilizer, fuel, and labor as being some of our biggest expenses on-farm here. And uh, certainly with the, the change in the global situation we're in, those prices and availability of those items has changed drastically.
10: Would you say it's never been so expensive doing business as a farmer?
9: Uh, we say with great confidence that the crop that we put in this spring, which would be April and May of, of 2022, is the most expensive crop we've ever put in the ground. So are Canadian farmers making money or breaking even? There will be some farmers, I think, that have the best year ever in their career this year. And there will be many farmers who lose their farm this year.
10: You mentioned it's been snowing at your place. What kind of conditions are Canadian farmers experiencing at the moment? Of course, keeping in mind, it's a very big country.
9: Yes, great. It is a very big place. So where I'm located, my family farms on the east coast of Canada and Prince Edward Island, and uh, our primary crop here would be potatoes. We have potatoes, soybeans, barley, and hay kind of rotation. And uh, we did see a a good growing season. We were a little light on moisture, but we had a good growing season. And then harvest this fall was just amazing. Our harvest would typically start the third week in September, and we had some of the best harvest conditions ever. So we have a good crop, uh, but uh, uh, we've got some geopolitical trade issues that we wrestle with in that commodity. That until until the the bins are empty and the checks are cashed, we won't really know how that pans out. Um, and when we look across the country, uh, we did see pockets of fantastic production, and we saw pockets with a bit of drought. So when we talk about this being the most expensive crop in the ground ever. I say to people, instead of us being at the front of the casino putting our our dollar bills or coins into the slot machines, we're in the back room now with the the guys wearing the sunglasses trying to, you know, make a go of it at high stakes poker. So the, the risks are greater Uh, the potential reward and the potential loss is greater as well.
2: There you go. That's what's happening in Canada at the moment. Mary Robinson, the President of the Canadian Federation of Agriculture, talking there to our National Rural Reporter, Kath Sullivan. Still to come on The Country our prospects for grain looking good, a new shipping service to New Zealand underway. And also a check on the weather. First up, the news headlines with Ellie Ward.
11: Thanks, Tony. An inquest into the death by suicide of a Tasmanian police officer has heard that he was being investigated for alleged child sex abuse crimes in the lead-up to his death. Senior Sergeant Paul Reynolds is one of four police officers whose suicides between 2016 and 2020 are being investigated in the Launceston Coroner's Court this week. The Tasmanian government plans to build five separate facilities to replace the Ashley Youth Detention centre minister for children and youth roger yench told state parliament ashley will be replaced with a single youth detention centre in tasmania's south for young people aged over 14 two bail assistance centres to keep children on remand involved with education and the community and two supported residential facilities to help former detainees reintegrate into the community And the Greens and Crossbench have done a deal with the Federal Government to pass legislation to make electric cars cheaper. The electric car discount policy with a Labor election promise, which removes certain duties and taxes from low emissions vehicles. More news at one.
2: Time now to check the latest on the weather. Brooke Oakley joins us from the Bureau. G'day, Brooke.
0: Good good afternoon,
11: Tony.
2: Um, And rainfall. Uh, There was a little bit around, but um, how much have we had today?
0: Well, in the 24 hours to 9am this morning, most of the rainfall fell about the west of the state with generally 20 to 35 millimetres there, although Mount Reed did get slightly higher with 37 millimetres. Most of the state did see a little bit of rain though. However, since 9am this morning, that rainfall has been just about the west and far south of the state, topped by 11 millimetres at King William Creek and 10 millimetres at Mount Reed. The main thing for today is that it's going to be a very windy day and it's already started being windy so far, with Hobart receiving a gust of ninety-eight kilometres per hour at 1055 this morning. We are expecting the strong and gusty southwesterly winds to continue for the rest of today and not ease until tomorrow morning. And there is a severe weather warning for damaging winds current for the upper Derwent Valley, southeast central plateau and parts of the western, northwest coast, central north and midlands forecast districts. The showers will also continue about the west, south and Bass Strait Islands, but it'll be mainly fine elsewhere. And then as we head into tomorrow, there'll still be showers about the west and far south, but fine elsewhere. And the strong and gusty west to southwesterly winds will ease during the morning. On Thursday, it's very much a similar story with showers continuing about the west and far south and fine elsewhere apart from possible showers in the northeast with westerly winds. And then on Friday, those showers about the west, south and central areas will mostly clear in the evening as we see a ridge of high pressure moving over the state. It will be fine elsewhere apart from possible showers about the northeast. And then on Saturday, it's a slight change in the pattern. Instead of westerly winds, we'll have a trough across the state later in the day. So we'll likely see showers developing during the morning and then increasing about the north and west in the evening. And there'll be northeasterly winds developing in the morning, freshening during the afternoon, and then shifting west to northwesterly at night as that trough crosses the state.
2: Okay, you did a couple of warnings there. Any other warnings for us?
0: There are. So for today, there's a gale warning current for all coastal waters except the upper east coast and for all southeast inshore waters. And a strong wind warning for the upper east coast and the central plateau lakes. Also a warning to sheep graziers for southern and central agricultural districts. For tomorrow, there's still a gale warning for northern coastal waters from Stanley to St Helens Point, And also for eastern and southern coastal waters from Wineglass Bay to Low Rocky Point. And then a strong wind warning for all remaining coastal waters, the central plateau lakes, and also all south inshore waters.
2: OK. And, Brooke, the coastal waters and swell, what's happening?
0: Out on the coastal waters, we've got west-to-southwesterly winds of 30 to 40 knots, reaching up to 45 knots about the south. Those winds are decreasing to 20 to 30 knots about the northwest in the evening. The swells in the west and south are a west-to-southwesterly of 4 to 6 metres, building to six to eight metres in the south, and the wave rider Boy at Cape Sorrel is currently reading 4.7 metres. In the north, a westerly of one to three metres, and in the east, a south to southwesterly of two to four metres, tending southwesterly four to seven metres offshore in the south. For tomorrow, we've got west to southwesterly winds at 30 to 40 knots about the east and south and 20 to 30 knots elsewhere, The winds are decreasing to 15 to 25 knots about the west during the morning and to 20 to 30 knots about the east during the afternoon. The swells in the west and south are west to southwesterly of five to six metres, reaching six to eight metres in the south during the morning and early afternoon, and then decaying to four metres in the evening. In the north, a westerly of one to two metres. And in the east, a south-west, south to southwesterly of two to four metres, tending southwesterly five to eight metres offshore in the south before decaying to four metres in the evening.
2: Terrific, Brooke. Thank you for that. Thanks, Tony. Cheers, Brooke Oakley, with the information for you on the weather. A texter says, Any information on a truck rollover at Buckland, please? No information on that at this stage, but motorists are advised the Lyle Highway at Wayatina, west of Leopuda Power Station, is blocked due to a fallen tree. Our motorists in the area should expect delays while the road is cleared. That's at the Lyle Highway at Wayatina, just west of the Leoputa power station block, due to a fallen tree. And if we get any information on the Buckland incident, we shall let you know. Coming up in just a moment, we'll look at the grain markets.
0: ABC Radio, keeping local conversations going. I think people want to feel connected. They want to believe in each other, and we need that sense of community.
12: Listening to
13: your show, got me through it. There's a huge power imbalance. This is an industry that is totally
4: unregulated. You're one of my favourite people on the radio. I grew up listening to ABC. Fabulous stuff.
10: Stay connected with ABC Radio. Let's keep this conversation
0: going. On radio, online, and on the ABC Listen app. Coast to coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
2: To the grain industry now, and grain markets are likely to remain on their current roller coaster given the global economic outlook and some very unstable weather. Locally, farmers are still expected to deliver some bumper cereal and oilseed crops over summer. Grain trader Paul Willows explains what'll shape how much they'll be worth in a few months' time.
4: Things have been really volatile and there's a couple of main drivers I could probably share with you at the moment. Firstly is um, from from a grain trading perspective it's the fundamentals Uh, and the second is the macroeconomic outlook. You know before I go into some of the fundamentals which are generally very supportive to the outlook of grains and oilseeds, the macro environment has really been driving the price the last couple of weeks and when I talk about the macro environment I'm talking about Um, people's perceptions of inflation. Generally speaking, when when funds are concerned about inflation going up, they tend to want to buy commodities, and agricultural commodities like wheat and corn and canola and soybeans fall into that category. You know, in the last couple of weeks, people's concerns of inflation have, have subsided a little bit, and so we've seen a bit of a pullback um, in terms of the enthusiasm to buy agricultural commodities as a result. The second sort of macro driving force is what I call geopolitics. And we've seen a huge amount of talk in in recent months talking about um, Russia and Ukraine and the so-called grain corridor. The talk of um, the unrest in Iran and what that might mean for commodities going forward. The talk of China potentially um, trying to take over Taiwan or invading Taiwan and what political ramifications might have on that. And so, you know, there's quite a number of other factors along with that as well we're watching. But the message I'm trying to get across is is that the day-to-day pricing in the last, I'd say the last six months, have really been driven by these, these macroeconomic factors. So
12: issues that are really out of the hands of growers on the ground.
4: Well, yeah, well, they are. Yeah, and they're largely out of the hands of the grain merchants as well. But the reality is, it's still a very big driving force in our market at the moment. The good news is, is that if you, if you go back to the, the fundamentals of supply and demand, there's a couple of really key long to medium term driving factors. And, and, and these are them. Number one, we're simply not growing enough grain in the world to satisfy the demand that's been growing in China and Africa and Southeast Asia. Even despite the fact that we've had record grain and oilseed prices, area globally has actually gone down, which is, I mean, to me, that's just unthinkable if you'd asked me that 18 months ago. Um, Corn area in the US, soybean area in the US, you know, uh, wheat area in the Black Sea region, obviously that's because of the conflict. Farmers globally are not responding to the high prices like they have done in the past. To me, unless the demand changes rapidly, as in we're a believer of a global recession and somehow we're all going to eat less, then we still haven't solved this problem with an, a, enough supply.
12: And then on top of that, you've got the perfect storm of different weather events around the world. Uh, Northern Hemisphere in drought, Southern Hemisphere in floods. How is that playing into where markets are now?
4: We've got climate volatility, drought net, Argentina. The driest it's been in 50 years in some of the key growing region. The US is, seems to be in this perpetual drought, particularly in the Southern Plains where they grow most of their wheats and corn. Australia, I mean, you've reported on it pretty well. And we've got biblical-type floods all through New South Wales and parts of Victoria. Biblical-type rainfall events in South Africa washing out 10% of their maize crop over there. Um, and then almost record warm temperatures in parts of Europe going into their their winter season with crops that are accelerating like they're coming out into, a, into spring.
12: How much is that likely to drive prices north?
4: Look, I think at the moment, you, you know, from a Tasmanian perspective... Is that the outlook for the crops this year is fantastic? You know, the rainfall, while it's been excessive in some parts of Tasmania, generally speaking across the grain growing regions, it's been exceptional. And this is in the Midlands? Yeah, exactly, in the Midlands um, and out Fingal Valley Way um, and even further down south. My personal opinion for the crops at the moment in general, it's probably the best they've ever looked and we're expecting some pretty decent yields. So you overlay that with Despite, you know, the problems that we've got in New South Wales, which are real, in generally speaking, the crops are going to be very big in Australia. You know, WA, South Australia, parts of Victoria are going to have record crops for sure. In general, if you, if you look across, we're still going to get a crop 33 to 35 million tonnes of wheat. You know, we're still going to be close to 7 million tonnes of canola. You know, when you put it in context with a drought of the drought years, Australia is looking fantastic.
12: So does that mean that perhaps uh, prices won't be as strong as they might have been looking maybe a month ago?
4: Uh, look, they're going to come off a little bit, but one thing I would say is that Australian uh, crops in general are very, very well-priced for export. We're getting a lot of downgraded feed wheat, for example, that is extremely well-priced into South Asia against corn from the U.S., so the take-home message is: yes, we've got a big crop, but it is extremely well priced into the world market. The, the range for, for canola, I think, is going to be let's call it seven fifty to eight fifty, something like that. And again, it's pretty wide. I understand, but that's how volatile the market is. For wheat, look, I think we're going to be in this kind of three eighty to four fifty range. Again, just depending on on how we go on the mainland and barley. Uh, feed barley is probably going to be in the range of, say, 360 to 420. That, that, that that's, would be my expectation. S- subject to all the other unknowns I've mentioned above.
2: Managing Director of XLD Grain, Paul Willow, speaking there too. Larissa Smith about the state of play with grain prices and the expectations. Well, a unique shipping service linking Tasmania directly with New Zealand has begun operation. First cargo of fish feed has left Devonport for its New Zealand port David White, Managing Director of Biomar, a fish feed company on the Northwest Coast, can tell us a bit more.
14: Yeah, so we're very excited. It was our first direct shipment to New Zealand. So, conventionally, feed that gets exported from us to New Zealand would go in a domestic container, then it would be taken across Bass Strait, then it would be taken out of the domestic container and loaded in an international container then that would be put on a different ship again and then that would go to New Zealand and it might go to, say, only one port in New Zealand and then it would come off that vessel and the bags would either be taken out of the containers then or the whole lot would be transshipped by road to another port in New Zealand. Um, and so that multiple handling all carries delay, it carries cost and it also carries the risk of disconnection, boats being missed and things being left at the wrong place, So a direct shipping service for bagged feed so it doesn't have to go into containers is a really fantastic step forward, both for us as the supplier and also because those multiple handlings can introduce quality problems. You know, bags can get damaged, um, consignments can get disrupted. It also helps uh, with the cost and reliability at at, at the farmers' supply side. And as the fish that they feed aren't that comfortable with not getting any breakeets, then uh, basically what we have to do is just try and make sure that that supply chain is as reliable as possible. So this is a huge, um, a huge step forward in terms of that reliability.
1: And how much does that actually save at a time when diesel costs have gone up and the, the costs of everything has gone up?
14: Well, it could, at, the, at the moment it will save them probably somewhere around about $40 a tonne to do it that way, the, the farmers and us about $40 a tonne, um, which is a really, really important saving for, for them. Um, in their businesses, and obviously um, free is one of those things that is necessary that doesn't actually improve our product or our customers' product directly so it's uh, it's a it's a good win for for us to uh, to have in the supply chain
1: now how did this come about it's It's going to be done by this New Zealand company who's running the ship. Was that um, your team reached out to them or they reached out to you with this opportunity for direct shipping?
14: Oh well, look, it was, it was probably discussions within the network that, that, made, that we made the connection through. So, you know, the business network that we operate in between us, suppliers, the farmers. And so, you know, you, you tend to, to, to start to think about how other people's businesses are, are uh, what their alignment is and, and what would be a win for them. And then you try and look for people within the business environment you work in to think, well, would they be a, you know, a good, a good partner or a good supplier of something like that? So it was a little bit organic. You know, in the sense that it, it arose, the opportunity arose, and was defined over time with a number of different in enough number of different conversations.
1: Now, this boat can carry about five thousand tons of cargo. Is that all fish food?
14: No, it, it, it's it won't be all fish food. It, it can be basically anything. Uh, this this these vessels can can handle everything from that sort of bagged fish feed through to containerized freight. So uh, so it, it is. Uh, quite a useful service now or quite a useful route now for people to piggyback on. So we're confident after we announced it uh, following the the trade uh, delegation to New Zealand, um, we're we're quite confident from the feedback we got after that announcement that there are a few other Tasmanian businesses that are already looking at utilising that vessel
1: now this this is actually timed beautifully with um New Zealand announcing their first open ocean fish farm, which we might call an offshore fish farm. Was that a coincidence?
14: Oh absolutely i mean i think I think the the, the company and the company New Zealand King Salmon that made that announcement last week I think they've been in that process for probably five or six years now uh, so it would be fantastically, uh, fantastically amazing if, the, if we could plan accurately in anyone's life that far out hmm. and land it on land it on a single week. It's really just an indication that I think the fish farming, the locally and, and globally, when you think about salmonid farming, are uh, recognising that the you know the, the the offshore or open ocean is is where the uh, the growth in the industry is going to come from, and so. All the businesses, whether it's people like us who supply feed to farms, equipment manufacturers, the other 12,000 people involved in Tasmanian uh, aquaculture, the wider aquaculture industry, are all looking at how product offerings may have to change, services may have to change, um, to to meet the challenge of, of operating in rougher waters.
1: Now, to play devil's advocate a little bit here, there's been some recent concern around a chemical called ethoxyquin or EQ which is used as a preservative in fish food often and used to prevent it from combusting while it's in transport. Is that something that Biomar uses?
14: Well, we don't actually. We specify ingredients not to have the tosquin within them. Uh, however, the, the issue of the is quite an interesting one. I think I answered questions about this one a couple of years ago as well. And it's something that pops up from time to time. It, it's not really a safety issue. It's, it's, it's more... Uh, legislative issue in in Europe, Um, so the ethoxyquins have been under review, they are not as ethoxquin, but actually because of the way the ethoxyquin is made and the chances that there's contamination in the ethoxyquin in the process of manufacture. So that's put ethoxyquin in a kind of limbo zone and because of that most people are thinking, oh we'll just move away from it. So we took the position on that basis, Uh, it's not that we thought it was in any way risky, it's just that what we thought was we'll just move out of it. There, there are alternatives, um, and uh, and and we tend to use those those
2: alternatives. That was Biomar Managing Director David White on a couple of issues. They're talking about additives to the fish feed that they make in the northwest, and also telling Meg Powell about their new direct shipping route to New Zealand, which he said is already saving their customers around forty dollars a ton. Coming up, we have a furfy story which is not really a furfy. Evenings with Carly Baxter. We have got so many songs about deportation to Van Diemen's Land, and um, everybody in Ireland lives in fear of. Tasmania, they still say it as really? oh yeah, even 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 now it's crept through all the generations that you know it's a place where you go and you never come back from well
12: it's you know. what's happened to you. You're here and you've never gone back. Yeah,
2: but, but, <laughs> but that's true
7: choice. <laughs> Evenings with Kylie Baxter, Monday to Thursday from 7 p.m. on ABC Radio Hobart.
0: It's the country hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
2: 043-8922-936 is our text line number. 043-8922-936. Now here is a story to inspire you to look through the sheds for some lost treasure. An old furry water cart and tank that had been living in a paddock in Beechworth in northeast, northeast Victoria for decades has sold at a clearing sale for a record price. Now listen to this: sixty one thousand three hundred dollars. Furfy water carts have been in recent years. Uh, They've been becoming collector's items and the horse-drawn water carriers were made in Shepparton. They were a common sight on farms from the late 1800s. Clearing sale manager from Kevin Hicks Real Estate, Chelsea McKay, has told Annie Brown she was shocked at the final price for the Furfy. Yeah,
13: well, I had a a phone call from the vendor um, just saying that it was part of an estate and they needed to... um moved some stuff on, but probably didn't have enough for their own sale. So that's why we'd put together a, a multi-vendor sale. Um, she didn't really know much about the history of the tank, um, only that it was, had been sitting on the farm for years and years, and that they um, wanted to sell it. We had mentioned that we hadn't seen one with the the pump on the front, um, but had sort of no real indication as to the value at the time. Yeah, we we then spoke to a couple of uh local collectors who all said, Oh no, that'll be very very sought no. after. We within the first twenty four hours it jumped to from um ten fifteen to twenty five. Um so we went, Okay, people people are keen. Then over the course of the week it went to thirty five, thirty six I think it was, on the morning of the last day. And then the last half hour just went crazy.
10: So final price was 61,300. 61,300 for a ferry water cart. What can you tell us about the water cart itself?
13: Uh the water cart was uh, the the transport was on was had seen better days. Um but the the tank itself was older you, you know you could see that it's been sitting out in the paddock for quite some time. It had a bit of moss and that sort of thing growing on it. Um, the tank isn't necessarily the draw card, it was the pump, the Surfy pump on the front, the main draw card, cause apparently, oh, so we've been told they're very, very rare.
10: What went through your mind when you saw the final price jump up in that last <laughs> little bit? <laughs>
13: surfy, collectors are crazy. Um, yeah, oh, just, just the standard Like I knew that it was going to make good money, but yeah, that just sort of yeah, blew us all
10: out of the water. Uh, you had previously sold um, Furfies before at clearing sales, but well, what were you usually getting before then, or what was sort of the highest price that you saw for Furfies, Furfies. before this?
13: Furfies tanks always sell well. Um, there's a lot of variance in them depending on what sort of end it is. Um, we did sell one in Achuca Village um, a number of years ago for record at the time. That was $26,000. And yeah, that. That was um, a big price at the time. A standard tank can, you know, an end can sell from anywhere from 800 to 1500 just on its own. Uh, the taps, the handle, they always sell for a couple hundred dollars each. So fur are becoming more and more collectible every year. But, yeah, still nothing
10: prepared us for this one. But what made it worth more than $61,000? Furfy collector and Shepparton's Furfy Museum curator, Josh Powles, says this tank was so valuable because it came with that original pump that you don't often see.
15: Look, with the way Furfy collecting is going uh, and the new collectors that are, are coming on the scene, I'm not terribly surprised, but it is a huge amount compared to anything else that's ever been paid for a Furfy tank.
10: So would you agree that this is probably a new record for the the brand? Definitely. What was it about this, this one in Beechworth that was so special that made it so valuable?
15: Look, this tank in Beechworth had a pump mounted on the back of it. Uh, so the furfy pumps themselves are a very rare item. When a pump was fitted, mainly around the 1930s, 1940s, they introduced them. Uh, when they fitted those, it more than doubled the price of the tank for the farmer to buy. So that made it a, a very big outlay compared to just buying a normal furfy tank. Um, apart from the, the pump itself being rare on this particular model, the tank ends that the pumps were fitted to had a special bracket and these brackets were only produced on the 1930 and 1942 model ends. Uh, the 1930s, there's a few of them out there, but the 1942s are very hard to come by.
10: Right, so it was an incredibly rare find, I guess, in terms of, of furphy carts and tanks? Uh,
15: very very rare and very significant. And look, it just shows that there's still things sitting out there in paddocks that people don't actually realise the significance of.
2: So the message is go and have a look around your paddocks. That was Josh Powell's Furphy collector and also Shepparton's Furphy Museum curator speaking there to Annie Brown. We also heard from Chelsea McKay. The clearing sale manager at Kevin Hicks real estate who uh, did sell that Furfy water cart and tank and pump for a record sixty one thousand dollars sixty one thousand three hundred dollars last week and the new owner is apparently a victorian, however wanted to remain anonymous. And we also got in touch with the vendors, Chris and Karen Barsh from Beech, Beechworth, who said the sale was part of an estate settlement. And Chris remembers his dad buying the furfy secondhand from someone in Murmungi in Victoria about 50 years ago. Chris and his sister were surprised it made more than double the amount of the previous record. And if you want to see a photo of uh, the record furfy, you can head online to our ABC Rural Facebook page or ABC Rural Online. And uh, with all good furfy stories, this one could also be a furphy. But it's not, I think. I'll leave you with that thought. That's our Country Hour for today. We will catch you after midday tomorrow.